Hi, welcome to the Disability Cornwall podcast, which is Conversations with me, Theo Blackmore. And today I'm talking to two people from, I'll let you introduce yourselves. Perhaps you go first, Luke. Okay, hi, uh, my name's Luke Beasley. I'm the lead development worker at the Disabled People's Archive, which is based in Manchester. Brilliant, thank you. And Ella? Hi, I'm Ella. I'm the archive project worker. And yeah, I'm just going to apologise in advance. I think my emails keep popping off and obviously this will be recorded. So you're a ding. Sorry. OK, I've turned my emails off, so there'll be no dinging from my side. But there we go. Um, so thank you both very much for your time and for agreeing to do this podcast. Uh, the reason why I wanted to do the podcast with you in particular was because uh, I just find it absolutely fascinating that you are creating a disability archive in Manchester as part of, I believe you're part of the Greater Manchester Coalition of Disabled People, is that correct? It is, yes. Brilliant. So so how long have you been doing this for? This is a good place to start, maybe. Well, Ella, you've, you, you're the veteran here, so do you want to take us off on that? Well, veterans are very kind way of saying I've been working here for a year. Um, I started in 2020, 2022, and Luke started at the end of 2022, if I'm correct. Um, Late summer, August. Yeah, and I started in January. Um, but the project itself has been in the pipeline since about 2004, a few members of GMCDP decided that it'd be good to create an archive of the disabled people's movement maybe with a particular focus on Manchester trying to get funding a few avenues opened up 2006 there was a um an independent survey done of some of the material that GMCDP had acquired and I think in 2019, it was the official launch of the archive. Um, and obviously with 2020 and the pandemic and lockdown starting, that kind of got pushed back. So then that restarted itself late 2021, 2022. So that's kind of where we are now. Um, do you have anything else to add, Luke? Yeah, I think the the decision, as I, as I understand it, and Ella, jump in if I've got this wrong, but the decision to try and do a, a disability history project or a disability archive um, was really based around the fear of how much knowledge and expertise and how many stories from the movement were at risk of being lost. Um, you know, around the, that kind of mid-2000 period, it became clear that the Sale People's organisations were not as able to um, to have the capacity that they had during the 90s and the early 2000s. And that, of course, only got worse over the, the austerity period. So it was a real attempt to kind of save knowledge, really, to kind of recuperate um, or, or really to, to preserve the skills and the expertise and the, the discussions which had already been had in the past and, and prevent those from kind of slipping away. Um, and I feel like we we kind of are, are, are trying to to protect that um, that knowledge, but also that that kind of project, and and um, do as best we can through our work roles in in making that as real as possible, and making sure that all of that you know really interesting and important stuff is available not just for disabled people today to look at to understand where they came from, but also to to learn lessons from for their own their own projects and their own activism. 
So that's really interesting. So you are um, the archive itself that is is a national archive. So you collect data basically from all over the country, do you? Or is it is it is it mostly Manchester, or is it all? You know, I, I don't. Well, we're because um, we're housed at Central Library in Manchester, and we're a partnership with Archives Plus because of their ac accession policy. Sorry. Um, it has to have a Manchester or a Greater Manchester link for us to take it in. Now, when a lot of DPOs or other organisations in the country began sending their stuff to GMCDP, this was before we had anywhere to store it. So they've kind of not turned an eye away, but also just since that came in as the initial collection. So we do have some stuff from Birmingham. We do have some stuff that's, we have journals from the United States. We have like a widespread of certain items, but if we were getting new acquisitions in and new accessions in, we couldn't take it unless it had a Manchester link. Um, we do have quite a lot of stuff that's spread around the country nationally. So it could, it is quite, a national look but realistically it's mainly Manchester Northwest you know nationally that would be such a big project it's a, it's a massive project isn't it if you were to be attempting to do that nationally I was so I'm great it's fascinating to hear that the the archive is stored in the central library in Manchester so in my mind I don't know what exactly it's a bit of an Indiana Jones do you open a big door and go in and there's just like shelves and shelves of old material from across across the area really across about disability history so you'd be we, surprised at how accurate that is <laughs> very much so so we share an archive space with um all of the local archives so archives plus in manchester used to be the old county records office which i'm sure is, is a little bit more intuitive so um all of the files from local uh you know, council services or council departments, but also local charitable bodies um, and civic organisations, you know, trade unions, the Freemasons, whatever. Um, that's all kept down there, as is all of our stuff. So you walk in and, and yeah, as, as, as you and Ella said, it's very Indiana Jones-ish, apart from it's probably much colder than the Indiana Jones films looked. Um, so you go and it's just kind of huge piles and piles of... Um, of boxes and packets of material. And then we, uh, all our colleagues from Archives Plus at the moment, will select that out to bring up to, to researchers. Um, so mercifully, you don't have to spend a whole lot of time in the Indiana, in the the, the, the tomb style setup. Um, you can go somewhere slightly more comfortable to read things and, and things will be brought up to you. You know, it's amazing. So I think back to, I started up a couple of disabled people's organizations here in Cornwall back in the 1990s. And the 1990s, you know, it's in, almost impossible to imagine it now, but it was a time when there was no internet. And there was a national organisation called ADAPE, the Alliance of Disability Advice and Information Providers, and I got information from them. I don't know how. And then I went and attended a conference in London, and I don't know how I found out about that. I guess they sent a newsletter out and stuff. And they produced lots of materials and lots of things. I mean, do you have old kind of paper-based materials from way back when before the internet i guess do you want to go on this ella um yeah most of our collection is pre-digital um it is a lot of 
newsletters, small peer groups that then developed into wider networks, like especially when you're looking at it from a Northwest, um, Greater Manchester look, you know, we have um, a newsletter for one uh, living centre in Oldham, and then they're having like the same conversations and ideas as another independent living centre further down the road in Manchester, but they're not connecting and then they eventually connect and then they may be developing something else. So you kind of see the development of DPOs quite early on, just through newsletters, just through information bulletins. Um, so uh, we've just been cataloging uh, journals and publications from disabled people's organisations and the amount of work and effort that's obviously gone into it pre-internet and you know whoever's got a printing press and whoever's got the um the local newspapers to take in stories and then comment on them like you could tell a lot of work went into it but yeah a majority of us just pre-digital um which then makes it very interesting to try and go through and transcribe and date and place uh it's not exactly google googleable yeah brilliant so and that thing you just described described there which is like how one newsletter can lead to another dpo finding out information about another dpo and then i guess making contact with each other so that you are they are then sharing their expertise now then expanding I mean, I wanted at one point to do, I've done a DPO map of where DPOs are across the country, and I wanted to kind of do some sort of time lapse thing with it to see how and where they arrive and where they, because, you know, there's been so many DPOs which have, have come and gone over a period of time. It would be very interesting to plot it as a map so that it's, it all comes into existence and lights come on where DPOs exist. And then they go out again if they cease to exist, but uh, many of them stay, stay, stay aligned. I mean, that sort of way of sharing information, I guess, is 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 really interesting for DPOs. And it's incredibly important for your archive. Yeah, I mean, I, that job sounds terrifying to a certain mm -hmm. degree because, as we know from the work that's been done by um, by the National Service Users Network um, and the Reclaiming Our Futures Alliance. DPOs or user-led organizations of one kind or another are, are, are going out of existence seemingly every week um, at, at the moment. And I guess even updating the map to turn the lights off sounds like more or less a full-time job and a, and a very kind of depressing one at that. I mean, I, I, I entirely agree. Um, Ella and I are both reasonably knowledgeable, we think, on the, the, the history of the movement. Um, However, there are times even when we come up kind of slightly stumped when we find something. Um, and we're very lucky in that we have a group of um, GMCDP lay members who support and supervise our project who we can go to with any kind of questions. Um, but it, it, it is really just a reminder of how kind of strong and active and varied the, the, the movement was back during its heyday and even during periods of time where we don't necessarily think of the self people's movement being this kind of huge national force, you know, even in, in periods like the 80s, there was a huge amount of um, of organization by disabled people of disabled people going on. And it's been a real kind of eye opener for for us, I think, um, having a having an opportunity to go through that in much more detail. And we've got 
you know, our, our collection dates back to the back to the sixties. Um, it deals with some of that that kind of messy period where are we looking at disability activism or are we looking at disabled people effectively being manipulated by non-disabled people, right? But disabled people being active and being mobilized in some sense. Um, and it's a real, it, I think it's a real kind of rich um, resource to look at that broad arc of how things happened, where they happened, why certain areas developed in certain ways and, and, and others didn't. But also for kind of, um, you know, we are very great to Manchester focus, but but also for looking at different trends within the national movement itself. So we are lucky enough to have a really rich collection, um, particularly of disability arts, papers and periodicals, but also papers and resources from um, disabled LGBTQ plus groups in the in the 80s, um, and also the disabled feminist movement as well. And it's been really kind of um, just fascinating being able to look at how that developed over time, and also to, to kind of think about and pose those hard questions of, despite the fact that more disabled people will talk about, um, you know, feminist issues or LGBTQ plus issues today than they did at any other point in the past, we're still in a position where we don't have strong national um, lesbian, gay, bi, trans groups of disabled people nowadays, and we don't have strong national activist disabled women's networks. Um, and to maybe try and figure out, you know, why that is, what was what was going on um, back in the day that we haven't been able to, to, to replace now. You know, that's all really interesting. I do quite a lot of, I'm very interested in this whole notion of intersectionality. And I, you know, it quickly became apparent when I started doing this map that there was only really one, maybe two LGBTQIA organisations across the country, which work with disabled people and very few from minority ethnic, minoritized ethnic groups. And that's just a real gap. And you're saying that there was much more of a scene as it were back in the eighties. That's amazing. Yeah, absolutely. Why would it? Why would? Where, where did it go? That's really sad. I, I think that's something we're all still trying to figure out, to a certain degree. Um, I mean, I guess I don't know when. When um, and this is speculative, um, but one of the the things we learned from other social movements is that when the national organizing structure is strong, then it, it it's much easier for groups of marginalized people to organize within that um or even against it right i mean i'm thinking about the um the women's liberation movement here in particular um women's lib was really strong because the trade union movement was really strong um and that doesn't mean that the trade union movement was always its friend often the women's liberation um you know they had to fight against the sexism of the of the wider workers movement but while it was there it provide it was it was something that you could um that you could use you could engage with you could demand things from it and then when it disappeared it was much harder for those feminist groups to to recreate themselves i, I suspect maybe something similar is true for the sale people's movement that once you lose you know the the british council um the big national disabled people self-organization whatever you think may have been wrong with it but once you've lost that it's much more difficult for groups who who are even more excluded to um, be able to find a voice and find the resources they need to, to fight for their position. Something that I'm really interested in as well is something you touched on a bit about why DPOs come into existence in the first place and where they come into existence. And 
I don't even know if there, there probably isn't an answer to why that is the case, but is is a lot of it personality dri- dri- driven. So, for example, I mean, maybe a lot of the reason why these LGBTQIA organisations ceased to exist was because the people who ran them stopped running them and moved on and there was nobody to take their place, as it were. Do DPOs, do you find that DPOs come into existence because there's a very strong personality or strong personalities in certain areas or not necessarily? So for my part, Ella, you you may have a different view on this. Um, So so please let me know. (laughs) If so, I think um, this is something that can go kind of two ways. I mean, you need strong personalities to build an activist group. You can't do it without them. Um, But I worry sometimes that often we can tell the stories of movements as in like like it's just led by great men or great women and you know there's nothing to be said for wider organization it's just these people were inspiring and got people to do things Uh, and i think that that's probably not right one of the things which really comes out in our collection is that when things work it's because there are any number of people doing really really difficult work and, and and thrashing things out together um my my guess um, would be that things change over time or, or things come into existence more to do with a lot of complicated local factors. So um, the, the particular difficulties that disabled people face in one area, but also how easy it is to move around within a city, um, what relationships were like with the local council or with the disability charities often that can play a real kind of um, triggering role into into a a disabled people's organization getting set up or an activist network getting going because people realize actually we're dealing with the same kind of problems caused by the same kinds of people Um, and and you get kind of naturally pushed together by that. Um, I, I think that's probably more common, although, you know, having good leadership is something that you can't really do without. And if you start to lack it, then, then you are going to have problems of some kind or another down the road. So you said a couple of things as well a bit earlier. Um, so you said so you, you used a word and the word you used was the heyday. When was the heyday of the disability rights movement? Perhaps, can you answer that maybe, Ellie? You haven't heard your voice for a while. I guess because Luke said it, maybe he has more of an idea of when the heyday was. But I think what's been interesting for me before I started this role, I didn't really know about the disabled people's movement. Um, I kind of learned about GMCDP around like maybe at the beginning of 2020 when I was looking for some support um, with the way that the pandemic was being handled, in particular to do with learning disability. And once I found GMCDP and realised that this is not just um, a recent organisation, it's a heritage organisation, they've been around for almost 40 years, and I'd not heard of it, and I'm interested in local history, I was a bit surprised, maybe it's more of a comment on me than anything else, but I feel like just seeing the rise and the fall and like what the heyday is probably defined as, that's probably got to do with 
strong national organizations national demos like people turning up and turning out and like getting responses not just from like local councils but from national governments and maybe the early 90s um I'm trying to think you know when Dan was mostly active sorry Dan got a lot of people on the streets Dan's an acronym isn't it what does it stand for uh disabled people's no direct disabled direct action network is it i think i went the wrong way around is it right luke do you that yeah, is yeah. okay um i'm so used to talking in acronyms that i then start to mix my dan's and my d-packs and all my other great old acronyms up but yeah maybe the early 90s i'm sure luke has more of an idea since he said the word heyday but I think because the disabled people's movement is quite a new social movement. It's a new, newer than some of the others. And maybe it's because it's not been explored as much and the history's not as well known within mainstream, like social movement history. But yeah. Yeah, no, I, I, I think that's right. I think heyday probably is in, in scare quotations um, to a certain degree because depending on what you think the movement is for or is will really depend on when you think it was um, the best version of itself. So there, 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 tend, there tend to be like two views of this as I, as I understand it. Um, if you think that its job is to get the government to pass laws that you like and not pass laws you don't like, then you'll tend to think that the, 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 the middle of the 1990s is probably when it was at its height because that's when um, you know, disabled activists had the the most meetings with politicians and got the the, the closest thing that we ever did get to um, anti discrimination laws that that were specifically about um, disabled people. And that's when you got direct payments and stuff like that. If you think that the movement is about disabled people taking control of the stuff that they use, whether that be um, you know the the ways in which you get aids and appliances out to people and decide which ones work and which ones don't whether that's around um taking control of um the the means of, of support so like the support that local councils provide and running that for disabled people by disabled people um or whether you think that's disabled people kind of working out their own um kind of priorities and and um kind of ideas in small groups if that's what you think it's for you'll probably think it's slightly earlier kind of in the um the the mid to the late 80s which was when um the british self people's movement was was really heavily involved in um international work with other groups of disabled people it was when sills were being set up that were not just about kind of an option amongst others as in like you need support you can go to a sill or you can go to this traditional charity it's up to you but we're really about actually saying, no, there should be no uh, disability services in this country which are not run by disabled people. And so depending on where your priorities lie really will depend when you um, when you think the heyday was. And so you used another acronym there. You said SIL. What's the... Sorry, Centres for Independent or Integrated Living. My Great. bad. Great. No, don't worry. It's... um. Big question I've got for you. Have you got a copy of or the original fundamental principles of disability? We have multiple and some are a bit more 
damaged than others, but we have, I want to say, at least six copies. Wow. Seven at my last count. Okay. Someone tried to give us one last week. How come there's six? Um, I think it just depends on. So we have so many depositors. Um, so we have our, obviously GMCDP. Um, we got a lot of donations from DCODP, DCODP uh, British Council of Disabled People, and then individuals who may have had a copy or had like clearing their attic out of some items that they thought might have been worthwhile. And then over time, we've just ended up with quite a few copies. We've got a lot of duplicates of the same thing. So seven of the fundamentals um, will have loads of different issues of different journals. Um, so then now we're in the process of contacting the in initial depositors to be like, we have a duplicate and this isn't a very good copy. Do you even want it back or we could give it to someone else? So it's, yeah nature of the beast of archiving i guess so for people that may not be aware the fundamental principles of disability was a document that was written up as a result of a meeting between the united union of the physically impaired against segregation and the disability alliance and it's got one of the most important things in it and that was a statement which led on to the development of the social model of disability and it's seen as kind of the the point the year zero really point zero of the disability rights movement in that kind of conception of disability as a concept of um, power and as a political concept rather than as a medical concept and i'm describing it badly i think but it's um it's an incredibly important document, I think. And it's so a document that perhaps lots of people might not be aware of, particularly younger disabled people might not have know about it. Do you do you think that younger disabled people know about that document and know about things like the social model of disability? So in terms of the social model, and I think it, it might make sense to talk about different social models as opposed to just one. I think that um everyone has a, a background awareness of it because I think it's a thing that we push so hard as disabled people's organizations whenever we do anything really and for, for perfectly like good and understandable reasons we say we want to separate facts about our bodies or our minds or whatever from the social position that we find ourselves in we don't want to say that um we're poor or we're excluded because um, in my case, I'm I'm severely visually impaired. We we want to say that it's because the way society is organised, that's what leads to this. And because it's a, a social thing, then it can be changed if we if we get together and think about how we want things to work separately. And and so at that very broad level, I think lots of people do have an idea about it. But of course, that is fleshed out by how and why you think society is organized in ways that exclude disabled people and that's one of the things that was argued about a lot in the past and the the union of physically impaired against segregation or, or ups as i'll call them um they were one really really important strand of that discussion so they had a particular reading of why that was the case and so it, in one sense, yes, younger disabled people 
have an idea about the social model. But if it's a question of do they understand what different disabled people meant by it or, or, or where people agreed and where they disagreed with each other, I don't think they do. On a, on a complete aside, and, and, and this is not particularly DPA related, so feel free to, to edit it out. Um, but I, with another hat on, did a, a, a talk last week um, around the, the social definition or the social model that UPS put forward and comparing that to some recent stuff, some recent um, books that have come out. And this was to mostly British people and mostly disabled British people. And it became clear kind of quite early on that people either hadn't read this stuff or if they had, they'd not read it on its own terms, if that makes sense. They'd read things that were, were current 20, 30 years after it was written back into it. Um, and I think that that kind of is a problem because it means that we don't take all of the ideas as seriously as, as maybe they deserve to be taken. Um, and I think that's particularly true for, for UPS. The, the fundamental principles document um, mercifully has been online for free now for, I think, maybe 10, 11 years, which hopefully, you know, that that also means that if people want to read it, and I agree with you, it's incredibly important. Um, they don't necessarily need to get a train up to Manchester to have a look at it, although we'd be delighted to see them if they if that's what they do want to do. We've got plenty of other really exciting stuff that they can look at as well. So how do people do it then? That's a really good lead into how do people get into the archive do people do people just drop in or do they need to make an appointment and do they come to you or how, how does it happen to people to access the archive is it open to anybody or is it only for academics or for dpos or um well to access it usually you have to email either one of us or the archive at gmcdp.com email address just because if you try and drop in we'll need to have at least 24 hours notice to recall the items up from storage um, because we're still quite early in the cataloging stages as well. That does mean a lot of the material that some researchers are looking for is embedded with some stuff that we've classified as red, not ready to be seen by the public yet, or amber that has personal information on that we need to either dock or um, censor, so just to do a GDPR rather than anything else. Um, but usually it's, we've had a couple of researchers come up from different universities. We've had a few from Cambridge, um, some from Norwich, I think. Um, but we're trying to make it so that anyone, regardless of if they are an academic or if they just have an interest in it, or if they want to just learn more and see some, uh, primary documents from the disabled people's movement that they can come and talk to us we're all very friendly we don't bite um but with the way that the archives plus um colleagues and the call-up staff works we need quite a bit of notice just to get it all together get it all called up and get it ready presentable in the search room um it's a room that you can just look at archival stuff with um usually can't take any water or bags in there so um and it's often people are under the impression that you need to use white gloves to look at the, some of the stuff it's actually quite damaging to look at um some archival material with gloves on that's just for the very 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 old stuff which we're quite lucky to um be mainly in the 80s so we won't be doing too much damage by handling it um 
yeah but I know that Luke you've had like a lot of requests you actually use the DPA um archive before you got a job here so yeah no I I poacher turned gamekeeper um so I think Ella that was that was a pretty brilliant kind of description of how people access it in person um, we have a couple of other little ways that we we, we make stuff available um so because of the age of a lot of the items we have many although not all of them um fall outside of copyright laws because they were they were produced either by individuals or small groups that just don't exist anymore and, and the people who wrote them are very sadly no longer with us so there will there are some researchers who um we got some some researchers who have um conditions which mean they're particularly made vulnerable with the current covid response basically um, and so if if items are copyright free, we'll just scan them for them and, and, and send them in, uh, th those over email. Um, so that is something that we can do. Um, we would ask anyone who, who wants to request any of our items be digitized, um, you know, to only request that if it's if it's an access issue, if it's impairment related, because if we were to do it for for everyone, um, just as a matter of course, we we do nothing apart from scan documents all day. You know, we need to we need to get the collection, the physical collection going strong. Um, we also publicly release digital copies of items in accessible formats, so screen reader friendly formats, easier to read versions, etc. Now that's quite a long job to do for any single document, um, and so the pace of that is not it's not rapid. You know, we have a reasonable turnaround. It's not a uh, an immediate one. Um, and we're going through old papers by members of the Union of the Physically Impaired Against Segregation, which have been unavailable for 30 or 40 years. Um, and we're also doing it with Greater Manchester Coalition of Disabled Peoples, uh, Coalition Magazine, which was a, a very widely read social movement um, journal and mag back uh, up until the, the the 2010s. So we're going through the back catalogue and getting all of those translated into easier to read and having screen read accessible versions of those. So those are the other ways that we we, we make our collection um, available to people if they're not in a position to, um, to come up to Manchester as lovely and sunny as it is. So that goes on to the question then, how much stuff have you got? I don't know, you know how you begin to answer that. You sent me three folders, Excel spreadsheets, with literally hundreds, thousands of documents in there. I don't know how many you've got. How would you even count that and quantify that in total? But but some kind of idea, how big is your archive? So archives tend to be measured in linear meters. So oh. a meter's length. And ours, Ella, I, I want to say 135. Does that sound right to you? It was 130 when it was first um, accredited by an independent source, but I feel like since then we've both we've like got more stuff since then. Um, I also think that doesn't include like the posters we have or the other types of material that does take up more space than just the boxes themselves. So That's I like guess uh, an estimate. <laughs> 130 meters of boxes. That is then. No, of, of contents if they were all laid out on the floor. So if you took everything out of the box and, and laid it on the floor, it would be 135 metres long. Um, so, yeah, it's certainly a, lot, a jog. A lot of stuff. 
a huge amount. That's amazing. And you said earlier that it's mostly from the northwest and from the Manchester area. So do you have big gaps in your in your archive of areas of the country, perhaps, that you might want more information from? Scotland. OK. Um, and, and Wales, actually. Those are the two areas where um, we don't have a huge amount of publicly available material. So in particular, um, the magazines and newsletters at DPOs or, or disabled activists put out or pamphlets, you know, uh, leaflets from different campaigns or, or, or something like that. Um, that's an area that we would like to develop a, a, a bit more of. Um, there are certain kind of time periods in certain places as well, which aren't quite as well represented as others. So we will know kind of from, from uh, the people on our steering group, the people we know, that people in, so people in say, Bristol or in Birmingham were were really active and really busy, you know, at some time in the early 90s, and we just don't have anything from there. So we're trying to plug in those kind of little, little gaps as well. You know, um, this is absolutely astounding. I mean, or so is, is it important? I, I know that Leeds, for example, does a disability archive, they have some they have stuff online. And I'm sure that other universities do as well. How important is it that the archive that you have is held by a disabled people's organization rather than an academic organization? I think for me, it's because, you know, it kind of echoes the famous saying, nothing about us without us. And I do feel like there is no, not necessarily a big divide between how academics understand disability and speak about disability and present disability history and how organizations of disabled people and average disabled people experience and speak about history. I think they're both valid, but I think to really create outreach and support and enrich the lives of disabled people in Greater Manchester, it'd be important for them to have access to the history that isn't maybe behind paywalls or behind academic jargon it's stuff that average disabled people in their area did to make the changes that they see today and they can like view the images of you the notes of a meeting and have a structured and spoken about experience with these artifacts rather than the kind of academic buildup of the history which I think it does inform some of what we do but I feel like we're taking it from disabled people at the time making it not thinking this is going to be published in a journal somewhere and peer-reviewed it's more about on the ground work of what disabled people are getting up to and I just feel like with the archive itself as well I think it's really powerful that this is a history by the people and for the people of Manchester, no matter what their impairment or if they are disabled, it's to kind of bring the social movement to light and bring this social movement that is kind of a hidden history. A lot of people don't assume that, you know, people know about the women's movement, people know about the LGBTQI movement, people know about the Black and Asian movements, but they don't really know much about the disabled people's movement. And why is that? Is it because it's been maybe 
shrouded in academic circles? Is it because lots of local disenfranchised disabled people can't understand or get their history because it's unaccessible? So those are like the things we're hoping to try and change. Um, but that's not to disregard the academic side of it. I know uh, a lot of people that access our uh, archive are academics and Luke is <laughs> an academic and we have a lot of academic help. Um, I feel like that might have sounded a bit shady, but that wasn't my intention. I feel like I maybe said that wrong. Yeah, not at all. I, I thought you could have gone further. I was I was waiting for the real barbs there. I was looking forward to them. I, I think uh, just to to because I couldn't agree more with with what Ella just said. Um, there's one thing though I I, I kind of want to stress. It's not just like us as disabled people or as as Greater Manchester Coalition um, who are thinking about owning our own archives. There's a really long tradition of this, right? So like women's libraries or women's archives. We've got some in, in Glasgow and, and Liverpool in, in this country. Um, and also anti-racist archives and, and black archives. There are several down in, in, in London. Um, and, and, you know, working class movement archives, trade union archives, anarchist archives, all that, that kind of stuff. Um, all share this, this kind of really basic belief about what their history is for. And it's not just to kind of be recorded and celebrated or it's not just to be poured over in detail so that, you know, we really understand it or something like that. Um, it's about the future as much as it's about the past, right? Um, and it's about using this stuff as a way to inform how we struggle today and what we struggle for and how we make decisions and how we design the world that we want to live in, even in the, the kind of darkest moments of the present. And that's, that belongs in a social movement. That doesn't belong in an academic ivory tower. That has to be a democratic process and that has to be informed by the, the needs and the, the wants and the ideas of people who are involved in those, those battles today. Um, and, and that's kind of no problem at all with the, the academic archives, you know, God bless them. Um, the fact that they were able to take all those those old documents and put them online for free, that's brilliant. But sometimes we need to, to have real conversations about, you know, what is our history for? How do we use it today? How do we bring as many people as possible into it? And I think that can only really be done in, in, in democratic organizations and amongst people who first and foremost want to, to change the world, not just understand it. Yeah, I think there's a real power of it being located at the DPO level because I'm very interested in this idea of the DPO sector as a specific sector. And I think that we as a sector are distinct from other sectors. We're a part, it's almost a subset of the voluntary sector, but we have got very specific issues and there's very specific things which apply to the DPO sector that don't really apply anywhere else. And I think it's therefore very important for us to understand ourselves and to see where we've come from and to begin to kind of forward think it a bit and think where we might go to I was in a meeting recently, I got funding for a project and the project was called Disabled People's Organisation Sharing Experiences During COVID. And during one of the meetings, we were asked um, as a group of organisations, and there were not only DPOs there, there was DPOs and other sort of um, people, organisations led by leaders with lived experience. So we were asked, what would make your, what would help your organisation thrive into the future? 
Um, and for the DPO sector, a lot of that is about core funding. But the key question for me was that word thrive and what does that mean? And you touched on it there, Luke, when you said about depends on how you view DPOs and what we're for and what we do. Because certainly back in the 1990s, uh, when I was first kind of involved in the sector, you know, my vision really of or my understanding of what organisations might be and might do was kind of much more about sort of social capital, bringing people together and cultural capital, bringing together different understandings of disability and artistic capital. So people sharing artistic knowledge and all of that kind of stuff. It wasn't really about service delivery stuff. And we much more are about service delivery now as DPOs than we ever were in our past. But for me, a thriving sector is a sector which is diverse and represents everything for everybody. So it's not only about delivering local authority services. It's also about delivering a really vibrant art sector. And it's also really about delivering stuff for um, inter, you know, various intersectional groups within the, within the sector. I could go on about it for hours, but a little bit um, incoherently probably as well. No, I, I think that's, that's right. Um, and I think there's, there's an element as well of, is it a sector which does things for, or is it a sector which mobilizes people to do things themselves? And I think there's a, there's a real back and forth on that, right? Like within the, the history of the Disabled People's Movement, how much of, of, of this has to be about getting the, almost like the, the groundwork in place, like the brickwork and say, okay, this is what needs to happen for um, disabled people to take a, a greater part in society. And it's only gonna be a, maybe a few of us working with the government doing it for now, but the important thing is that um, we can get all of that, that stuff in place that we need, direct payments, anti-discrimination legislation, kind of whatever, um, or, or particular services in the community. And, and how much of it is going, well, look, this is never going to be perfect, but the important thing is that we steer it from the ground up, you know, Yes, it might take a bit longer, but as long as disabled people are learning the skills to manage their lives and their societies for themselves, that's more important than anything else. Um, and I think maybe sometimes the, um, even in the academic debates around the history of the movement, that gets missed because they're not looking for it. You know, like to understand that tension, you kind of have to be pretty deeply involved in disability politics and have that as a, a question which comes up for you practically every day. Um, and I think that's one of the things that, that our collection kind of captures really, really well. And one of the things that we've been working with researchers to, to, to bring back into, um, you know, discussions which are going on today and to try and inform those, those, those debates today, which, you know, will come up whatever happens, but, but inform them with, with how people spoke about it in the past and try and enrich um, the, the ideas and the strategies that are going around today. It's a great book. When are you going to write the book? Uh, that's someone else's job, mate, above my pay grade. Above your pay grade. <laughs> no, but I mean, it would be a great book because I, I remember a lot of the disability rights movement was was very visual. It was, all, you know, when I say write the book, I mean collate a book because there'll be lots of pictures in it and lots of posters and all of the kind of the nothing about us without us and, uh, you know, the old, lots of images even from the old, you know, the... Um, the riots against the telephone and all that kind of stuff back in the 1980s. I think uh, that's your project, Ella, the, the, the pictures and the cool aesthetic stuff. 
I'm actually working on something at the minute to try and get a bit of a structured plan because we do have quite a lot of photos um, and we have a lot of posters and mainly visual um, artifacts from the movement, but scanning them in and getting them image described and getting them alt texted and getting everything ready to either go online and to have like an online catalogue as well as have them physically looked after because some of these photos have just been chucked in a box and have been squashed so you know not photoshopping them but just restoring the image um a little bit so we have got the telephone 82 uh we have a lot of people throwing themselves in front of police cars um people trying to be lifted into police cars but the police vans aren't wheelchair accessible so loads of coppers looking a bit confused <laughs> Yeah, that would be, you know, what a brilliant book that would be, a brilliant a brilliant visual archive. Mm-hmm. And so when we talk about, you know, archive, the, the word itself is about the past, but it stretches into the future in my mind as well. And archive is also has a, has a reach into the future. And you did mention the Direct Action Network earlier, Dan, but you also mentioned DPAC, the Disabled People's Action Network. Is that the Disabled People's Action Network? Civil people against cuts. Sorry, that's exactly what it is. Um, and and that's kind of taken over the mantle in many ways of Dan, because they do a lot of direct action. They're very grassroots and they're very unfunded, underfunded, and it's very much about a kind of a groundswell of activity. I mean, it's I can see that growing very much out of an archive like this. Yeah, I mean, we one of the really interesting things. I think is that we don't, we almost are, are, are kind of um, opened to all of the trends that you get within disability politics. Um, and so we do have, as, as Ella pointed out, like huge amounts of, of direct action stuff. Um, in fact, we've got um, some copies of a little pamphlet that was written by the artist Liz Crow yeah. in the late 80s, early 90s, I forget the exact date. Um, where she she basically just goes, what is direct action for? How do we do it? What do we need to think about? And it's almost like it was um, it was published by by the Great Imagine Coalition, and I think sent around to lots of places around the country. And it was the first time that people were trying to think through, you know, what are the protest tactics we use? What are the pros? What are the cons? Um, and, and that that led to a, a lot of discussion and arguments. And and so we have a lot of things like that. And there are certainly um i think things which can you know it, it, in, inspire and help um direct maybe some of the the, the direct action protests that, that are going on nowadays we also have a lot of the um a lot of the more i don't know respectable stuff as well a little bit so we've got you know details on you know from different uh, organizations and activist networks on um you know here's how to write a letter to your mp or Here's the legislative how... side of it, let's say that rather than the <laughs> Yeah, I think that that's fairer. But the more the more kind of standard um, you know, activist in your local area getting a petition together, um, you know, negotiating with the train provider, lots of minutes of meetings where people were talking about how to um make the buses more accessible, the trains more accessible in in Berry or um in, in Oldham or something. Um and so we have kind of all of that stuff um at different places within our archives and it is kind of 
you know, it is great to, to focus on that really like vibrant, exciting um, stuff where you see disabled people taking, you know, taking real risks and throwing off this label of, you know, being vulnerable and having to wait to have things done for them and needing to be protected because you don't seem all that vulnerable when you're throwing yourself, when you're chaining yourself to a bus, you know, being ripped off of it by coppers. Um, but we also, it, it's also really interesting to know, you know, what happened with the other side of things, you know, where was it that um, polite letters were really successful? Where did they fail? Well, where were the limitations of both approaches? And I think it's almost the kind of combination of the two to being able to see how they come into tension with each other or how they fit together. That's been really, really fascinating from where I'm stood because that's, that's how you see how a movement develops overall over time. So, that's amazing. It's um, amazing that the archive is where it is and that you're doing the work that you do. An obvious question is that your focus is largely going to be in the Manchester area. We need more of, we need more of these things, don't we? We need some, we need one in the southeast, maybe one in the northwest. We need we need them everywhere. Northeast rather. We need them in the southwest. We need these archives everywhere because there's a whole load of stuff. You know, you've got 130 meters. Um, we wouldn't get, I don't know if we'd get 130 metres down here in the southwest, but we would get metres. You guys, I, I don't know about Cornwall so much, but a lot of the DPO history in the southwest is already held at local authority archives. Um, so it is, it's available. I, I guess the, the issue is disabled people don't necessarily have a say over how it's used or, yeah. or, or how it's adapted. Um, I mean, I, I, you know, it, it may be an idea if any DPOs have the time and capacity to maybe start thinking about how they could work with those local authorities to to get that stuff out and get that, um, you know, in an adaptable form. I, I agree. The more we have of these around the country, really, the better. Um, we know that the disability arts scene um, is running their their own archive at the moment. Um, which is great that's based down in in, in buckinghamshire um but the the you know trying to do everything by a national setup does have its pitfalls and that is that regions will be underrepresented because um you know either things didn't make it out or it was very easy for things to get lost or even if we get it we might not understand the local context particularly um it's very easy if you're in Manchester or you're in Bristol to find someone who can tell you about what was going on in Manchester or Bristol during the, the 80s or 90s. Um, it's much more difficult for someone to tell you what was going on in Inverness or, or Belfast or um, the Vale of Glamorgan or something like that. So, uh, yeah, more, more of these things locally would be absolutely amazing to see. Some organisations have their own kind of heritage projects, which are really good. So uh, Spectrum down in Southampton and Hampshire uh, they do some really, really great work on digitizing their own history, uh, which we've used a lot for research materials when we're trying to um, figure out what was what was going on at a certain period of time. So we we can put it down for the cataloging notes um, and others are perhaps a bit more recent um, and so don't have that, that opportunity. But in general, it's something that we'd like to see kind of uh, increased and improved across the the. The, the movement as it is today, although we we understand and fully respect all of the challenges which go along with that, because, you know, we're lucky enough to kind of be paid to do this uh, for a living. And our colleagues at, at the Greater Manchester Coalition 
you know, did this as volunteers for like 10 years, maybe. And it's a very, very difficult job to do without all of the luxuries of time, of an archive building, of support from um, from from Archives Plus that that, that we have. So listen, that's great. That's um, an hour out of your lives. Thank you incredibly much for that. There's a $60 million question, of course, at the very end of it is, what did I not ask you that I should have asked you? Is there anything that I've not said that, or anything you wanted to say that you I didn't give you a chance to say? Ella, is there anything from you? I feel like... The main honcho questions were covered. Um, you can find us online, um, archive at gmcdp is our email, but the disabled people's archive.com um, online. Um, that's all that I can think about adding in at this time. Do you have anything, Luke? I, I do have one thing, um, which is we, for our digital holdings, particularly on the disabled people's archive website, um, we spend a lot of time trying to make sure that the access adaptations are good and high quality, but um, within our team, there isn't the range of, of impairments that would allow us to have lived experience of the difference between, you know, a technically okay adaptation and one that's actually good. Um, so if you are a screen reader user, if you use easier to read or, or you know people who use easier to read, um, if you tend to be a large print user, um, please, if you're interested in what we have, go onto the website, have a look at the material there. And if the adaptations aren't as good as you would like them to be, please do email us and we'll we'll find a way to get those fixed. Um, we often kind of, we, we do these because it's super important to get them as, as accessible as possible, but we are always open to improving with feedback. So um, if that sounds like you and you are, interested in the movement's history, um, please do have a look, please do get in touch if it's not quite up to spec. Absolutely marvellous. Thank you very much, Luke and Ella from the Greater Manchester Coalition of Disabled People's Disability History Archive. Um, I wish you all the best. Stay safe. <laughs>